John 17, right? I'm, I'm going to look at five words, so I don't need to, to read a whole lot today. But John 17, remember the moment. Jesus has just eaten the covenant meal that inaugurates and sets in place a commemorative meal that his people are going to eat for until he returns about the moment that has come in the redemptive history that all that God was doing. When you start from Genesis to Revelation, this is the moment it's here. And briefly, there's going to be this little bit of a window. The meal is going to conclude they're going to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we don't know exactly where that prayer takes place. Did it take place in the meeting room where they were gathered in the upper room? Or did it take place on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it in the garden? We don't really know the, the exact context of the prayer. But we do know this. In, a, in just a short time, right? Jesus knows what Judas has gone off to do. He has left the meeting. He is going to betray him. Jesus knows the wheels are in motion. And he is about to be taken and he is about to face crucifixion. He knows this. He has explained to the disciples what's about to, to transpire. So he knows he is standing at, at the doorway of that event. And he stops and he prays the longest prayer in the New Testament. He stops in the midst of this crushing moment being betrayed by one of his own disciples. Setting in motion, telling his disciples, I'm going away and you're going to be scattered. And in that moment, he prays. And we get a chance in John 17 to listen to the topics of his prayer, the things that he is concerned about with that agenda upon him. This is quite a moment that we find Jesus praying. So, I can't, I can't lead us through all of John 17. I just want to pick up one aspect. We've been going through this slowly. We're going to go through it for a few more weeks. In John 17, verse 9, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am praying for them. I, the Son of God, who is the perfect Son of Man, makes this simple statement. I am Praying. I am praying. And the title of the message this morning is, I am praying, and you should be too. So in this moment, Jesus does something that may be counterintuitive to, to the prayerlessness that is so easy to find in our day, in our own world. Very few churches do prayer well. Let me just tell you that. There are very few churches who gather people well. They can, they can get, mega churches can gather thousands in a Sunday setting. And we gather a decent crowd on a Sunday setting. But just ask everybody to come to a prayer meeting. And you can hold it in one of the pastor's offices. You know, it's just a little small group of folks that are going to show up for this thing called a prayer meeting. Because apparently whatever's happening here this morning is so much more vitally important. Really? All right, so there's something missing in our understanding of prayer, right? So I'm going to say in your outline there, I'll put a couple of thoughts. I'm praying could be the opposite of a fatalistic prayer life. I think the kingdom of God suffers from a fatalistic prayer life, right? Fatalism comes from the word fate. Fate is defined as the development of events beyond a person's control 
regarded as, listen, determined by a supernatural power. That's fate. Right? The Greeks had, I think, three gods who determined the fate of individuals. They actually determined days and breadth of life and scope and scale of things, etc. And so somehow these three determined, they, they set the course, they set the fate of your life. So there is this concept in play that exists that, well, you know, things are just determined. It's, it's fate, right? Fatalism is the philosophical doctrine that all events are predetermined. So that man is powerless to alter his destiny. And this works itself out this way. This is the third definition from the English, Collins English Dictionary. A lack of effort or action in the face of difficulty. Last one. A submissive outlook resulting from a fatalistic attitude. That's the Oxford de- definition for fatalism. This idea that there is this event, this coming together moment of events and activities and the the power to do anything about that is set in such a way that you might as well just do nothing. So you just get this submissive, just kind of give in to the moment, this fatalistic attitude. Nothing's happening, but, but that's not what we see Jesus doing here. Now listen, I get this. I, mean, I pick up some of these words. There's, there's something determined by supernatural power. Wait, really? There's a predetermination in our world? Well, that kind of sounds biblical, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like teaching on sovereignty? There is a sovereign God in the universe who ordains, controls, superintends everything that happens. Nothing moves outside of his sovereign involvement. Isn't that what the Bible says? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible teach on the providence of God where their sovereignty is not just this big mechanism, but God's involved in the details of your life? So much so that he could number the hairs on your head. He knows every day that's ordained for every person who ever exists before there was yet one of them. He bottles up the tears that you cry. He could tell you how many tears you've cried. He could tell you how many ounces they make up in your life right now. So does this sound like a God who doesn't have control over everything? Then the Bible speaks prophetically, right? It stands at this moment in time and it peers into that moment in time as it says, hey, this is going to happen this way. And then beyond that, this is going to happen this way. And in the end, this is how it all turns out. And it doesn't ever sound like maybe. If, if the Bible never sounds like if everybody does the right thing, then we'll land at a happy moment right here. And this is the way it'll turn out. It just decrees. So you could pick all that up, right? And kind of say, well, Keith, help me here, man. What's, what's the point of praying if all those things are true? Well, they are all true. And the son of God who is modeling prayer for us today, he knows they're true. He doesn't have an ounce of confusion in this category. I do, I got lots. I can just tell you everything I just said and said, I pray because God tells me to pray. Period. 
I don't pray because I've figured out the mystery of how my prayers involve the outcome thousands of years from now or whatever's going to happen next. But the one line there about fatalism is you're powerless to alter destiny. Jesus prayed like he was messing with destiny. Well, was he or was he not? Listen, hey, you ask him when you get there. But I do know this. He prayed in particular ways. He prayed specific things. I am praying for them. Vaguely? No, specifically. And you can see in John 17 about this and about that and about this and about that. He had specific things. He had some kind of a mindset that the words being presented to his father were necessary and were part of whatever was going to be happening in the future. He doesn't unpack that. He totally assumes that. And you and I are fools to not assume it as well. And we're too smart for our own britches. When we begin to act, it's like, well, I don't need to pray. Really? You have an explanation for why you don't need to pray? Really? Would you have been the knucklehead disciple, the 13th guy in the room with Jesus who said, I don't know why you're doing that right now. Let's just go. Hey, we're going to be late. Some people are are coming to betray you. We don't want to miss them. So we probably need to get going now. We don't have time for that prayer thing. How many guys always feel like we don't have time to pray? Anybody? Jesus took time to pray, and he educates us about prayer. So I, I want to do this. I want to walk through some things that Jesus assumes correctly, and that may cause us to pause in our prayer, but he does not to help us have our own prayer lives invigorated. Now, back in the day, people used to bring Bibles to church, right? Remember those things? They had paper. You could smell them and stuff. They were really cool. Um, And the really cool thing about that is I could ask you to open up to a passage and you could see the whole passage in front of you. And so they would be really helpful. If you've got a gadget like that, if you could go to John 17, because I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you everything I'm going to interact with here, but I I want you to be able to see it. So if I mention this verse, you can just kind of look at it with me. Um, Let let me just, let me just create some holy ground here as well. Uh, This this is a setting. I say this unapologetically, and, and, and I don't know how to be more insulting, but I'll try. Um, this, this is holy ground for a holy God. This is a moment for open hearts and open Bibles, not for open apps. God is worthy of 100% of my attention in this moment. Listen, I'm not worthy of that. I don't know why you come, quite honestly. If you have to come listen to me every week, I, I'm puzzled. But we, we trust the preaching of God's word is in the hands of human beings and we just open our hearts to God to do something in our midst. This is holy ground because of that. I know you got a lot of mail coming in and somebody's texted you and Oh my gosh, somebody's eating a hot dog that you need to see the picture of that. Um, I know all that's important. Maybe after the meeting, you can, you know, we can have a ministry time just for that. And you can go open your apps and just whatever that does for us. But right now, you don't need to see all that. You need to see God's word come to life in your own heart.
So let's, let's focus in these moments like we don't focus anywhere else and, and let's let God encounter us. All right, so here's a couple of things we observe from Jesus' prayer. First, Jesus' intercession that God would be glorified. He is going to stop and pray for something that seems so obvious that God would be glorified. Verse one, the hour has come. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse five, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this stopping moment to say, Father, glorify your name. I mean, let me just bring that up right now. Of all that's going on, of all the threat and all the details, glorify your name. All right, well, you're the son of God. You've known the scriptures. You've inspired them to be written throughout the church age and throughout history. Don't you know that's going to happen? Do you, have you read something in the Bible that's caused you to think that maybe God will be glorified and maybe he won't? Does anybody here doubt for a second that God is going to be glorified by everything that exists? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every act of man, what the enemy meant for evil, God was in the middle of it using it for glorious good. Everything is revealed as glorifying God. Listen, just real quickly, Psalm 86, verse eight. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you made, listen, they shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Maybe, oh no, no. All the nations you made, they will glorify your name. Habakkuk 2, verse 14. The earth will be, guaranteed, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 15. Who, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who, who's going to pull that off? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. John 12, Jesus had prayed earlier, Father, glorify your name. He gets the revelation from heaven. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole Lord, this is what's going on in heaven right now. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Jesus, do you really need to stop right now and and pray that the Father would be glorified? Isn't, Isn't that a done deal? Don't we know for sure? That's the one thing we know is gonna happen. We may not be able to figure out everything else, but we know that everything that the perfect, all powerful, sovereign God created will bring glory to his name. Don't we know that? Jesus, don't you know that? And yet, here he is praying, Father, glorify your name. In all that's about to unfold, in every act, in every motive of every person who's about to make a decision with regards to my life, with my willingness, 
for your will to be done. Glorify your name. All the details that went into the act of what we were about to see of Jesus Christ willingly offering himself as a sacrifice in cooperation with the Father's plan to bring forgiveness and to wipe out sins, to remove the barrier, and to bring restoration between God and man, and to return the Spirit of God into man's hearts. All that needs to take place, every ounce of movement that has to take place. Father, superintend all that and glorify your name. That's what he's praying. And there's, there's something to, to pick up here because in that little phrase, he says, I am praying. I want you to notice this. And listen, we could be in John 17 a long time. We won't be. But I hope if you're trying to build your own prayer life, you will be. I hope you will do much more than what we're able to do here in the weeks that we spent in John 17. Because there's so much here, right? So Jesus uses a word. He says, I am Praying in verse 9. I am praying. That word praying in the Greek, it's used 63 times in the New Testament. It, it, it can mean these things. It can mean to, in, to ask. I am asking. I, it can mean to interrogate. To inquire of. It means to request or to beg or beseech. There, there is... There is an inclination, there is a longing, there is a passion, there is a weightiness to this word. I am praying. I'm not just mentioning some things to God. I am praying. I am saying something. I am asking. I am, I am interrogating God about these matters. There is a sense of weight for Jesus. I think some of that is what creates the prayer clauses that we either do or do not have. When things weigh something... In eternity, when things weigh something for the glory of God, when things weigh something to us and they're beyond us, we will find our way before God. It's when they become light and unimportant to us or things that we can manage or I've got this or my bank account's plenty big enough to cover all those issues. When, when that's our posture, then I think our prayer closets evaporate. But what you hear in Jesus here it is request. He is asking. But I, I want to just notice, just notice something here. I'm not going to spend much time in it. There, there is request here, but there's reasons as well. Some of what Jesus says in this prayer are not requests. They're reasons why God should do what he's requesting. There's petitions. That's a classic word for our prayer life. We are petitioning God. But there's purpose. Jesus taps into the purpose. And then there's asking. But there's arguments here as well. And so if you listen for everything Jesus says, it, it, it kind of starts to sound like Jesus is trying to talk his father into something. And listen, that's what he sounds like. He didn't just make a request. He makes a request and he backs it up and he gives him reasons. You should do this because of this and because of this and because of this. And he goes one after another. Let me just highlight a few of these for you, but notice them because there's something, I'm going to say something childlike in this, but this is what your kids do when they come work you over. You know, they got a request for you, but they don't just have a request. Can I go to blank? That's not just, that. they're not done, are they? Because they're ready for you to say no. Well, so-and-so is getting to go. And, and last week, I didn't get to, I mean, they got, like, they got this whole case they're ready to present to you, right? They've got requests, but they got reasons as well. They've hired an attorney to put together arguments for them. And they're asking, and now they're arguing. And whatever you come back with, they've got to come back. And you come back, and you've got to come back. And they maybe even anticipate that and unload the whole thing. Well, here's Jesus with reasons and arguments. Listen to him. 
Verse 1. This is where you're going to have to have your Bible open to trace quickly. It's the hour we've been waiting for. Father, glorify your name. Well, give me a reason. Because this is the hour we've been waiting for. This is what's been spoken of since you said in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent would be crushed under my heel. This is the hour. This is it. So glorify your name. And here's the reason why. Because this is the hour that everything has been designed to reach. Right? That's not a request. That's a reason. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's not a request. He's not asking for authority right there. He's acknowledging, Father, you had a divine purpose and strategy to give authority to me. And the reason, the reason for it was so that I could give life away. Glorify your name. Right? This, is, this is an argument. Verse 3. In order that they may know you. That's not a request. That's a reason. I'm, I want to transfer life to their name and I want you to be glorified by that. So that they may know you. There's something that Jesus knows about that. That phrase is so powerful. That he knows for the ones that he's praying for. In this moment before he's going to suffer. He knows there's something so rich. So meaningful. So important that they may know you, the one true God and, and Jesus Christ whom you, you have sent. This is a reason, but, but do you notice? This is why Jesus has a prayer closet. Because knowing God weighs something to him. And as he stares out at his disciples and he recognizes the most important thing about their existence is that they know you. And so he's requesting things, but he is arguing for them. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, so glorify me now in your own presence. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, and while I was with them, I kept them. This is not a request, is it? This is a statement. So now you keep them. That's a request. Father, keep them. I kept them while I was here, but I'm no longer with them. Verse 16, they are not of this world, but I am sending them into this world. That's not a request. Sanctify them in the truth. That is a request. So Jesus recognizes the weightiness. They are going into this world. With all of its influence. With all of its antagonism. With all the spiritual forces that are here. With all the deception. With all the difficulty that's going to come. With all the tribulation that's going to come into their lives. With all the reasons they will be presented with. To quit. To give up. To go after something else. Here's my request. Sanctify them in the truth. Right? Argument and asking. Verse 21. That they may all be one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That second phrase is not a request. It's a reason. Father, make them all one. And, and, and here's why. Because when you do the miracle of making people unified, the way in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is unified, when you do that miracle, the world is impacted by it. They see something and they can't help but Father, that's the reason why. Do these things for that reason. Verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Right? So you notice something here? Jesus 
prayer time is filled with requests, but he's full of reasons why. You and I sometimes don't have enough reasons. When you don't have enough reasons, you're not compelled to pray. You can't take matters up before God in a way that draws you into your prayer closet. Like, like this is your day in court. Some of you guys who've attended some of our prayer uh, team meetings in the past, you know, I've referenced and encouraged all of our prayer team members to, to read Charles Spurgeon's message titled Order and Argument in Prayer. And it, it's, it's an incredibly insightful, helpful uh, understanding of what, what are we doing when you're standing in the presence of God and you're praying. Well, listen, listen to what Spurgeon says from that message. He says, first, it is necessary that our suit... So we're coming before God, we're presenting a suit. We're presenting our case before God. Our suit be ordered before God. There's a vulgar notion that prayer is a very easy thing. Kind of common business that may be done in any way without care or effort. The ancient saints were accustomed to ordering their cause before God. For example, a petitioner coming into court does not come there to state his case on the spur of the moment, right? You don't go before the judge or a jury, no preparation, no angles. You haven't thought through anything. You're just going to say whatever comes to mind just off the top of your head. Certainly not. He enters into the audience chamber with his suit well prepared. Those of you guys who are attorneys here, you know you rehearse your points. You know what you're going to say. You know where the key points are. Moreover, He has learned how he ought to behave himself in the presence of the great one to whom he is appealing. In times of peril and distress, we may fly to God just as we are, as the dove enters the cleft of the rock, even though our plumes are ruffled. However, in ordinary times, we should not come with an unprepared spirit, even as a child does not come to his father in the morning until he has washed his face. So you and I make requests before God. Have you stopped and backed up and said, what are the reasons for which I'm asking this? Why do I want this? That might change a lot of your priorities in prayer because you might get revealed about whether this is really important enough to be on your list. But it may also inform you of the mind of God about things that you're praying about because the arguments that work with the court are the ones that have precedent. The ones where you can say, God, you did this and you said that. And in the past, you've done this. So therefore, do this one too. And that's what Jesus is doing in this prayer. Right? Let me get, move through a couple of these other things from Jesus. Jesus' intercession for keeping and protection. He looks out at his disciples and he prays for them. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Peter Brought us a word on that. I think uh, Aaron shared some thoughts as well about the keeping of God. But he's requesting this. I am praying for them. What are you praying, Jesus? I'm praying that you keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Is Jesus praying this? Because he thinks that's in question? Does he think that maybe they won't be kept? Does he think that they're vulnerable in some kind of a way that he's trying to cover that? 
Well, that'd be hard to conclude that based on what the scriptures reveal that God knows. But notice, he is praying that. And it sounds weird to say, not even a concern. Well, if it's not a concern, why is he praying it? And this is where the mystery of prayer comes in. He is praying for something that the Bible would sort of sound like, hey, dude, that's covered, man. All whom he predestined, he called. And all whom he called, all whom he called, he justified. And all whom he justified, he glorified. So if you, if you back up to this group that travels to this location, this location, and this location, anybody lost along the way? Did we lose two or three right here? 400 of them fell out right here. Anybody get lost along the way? All he predestined, he glorified. All he called, he glorified. All he justified, he glorified. They all made it. That's what the Bible teaches. Does Jesus know that? Of course he knows that. He, He knows this as well. John chapter 10. He said this. My sheep, they hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, not temporary life, not a momentary experience of life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. How do you say that in John chapter 10? And then a few chapters later, you're praying about the evil one and them being kept. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you sure of that, Jesus? Because in John chapter 17, it sounds a little different. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Now he's explaining why no one's going to snatch them out of his hand. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Then why pray what you prayed in John chapter 17? Well, because in the mystery of how God runs his universe, those prayers matter just like those truths that have been said. You don't get to have one instead of the other. You don't get to read this one and say, well, it doesn't matter if I pray because the Son of God is modeling prayer for us right now. He knows these things are true. And he is praying in agreement with them and asking his Father to do the very things the Bible reveals that God plans to do. That should wonderfully inform our prayers. There's an evil one out there. Right? This evil one is a spiritual being living in our world whose mindset and intention and mission in life is for you and I to never arrive at the destination that God created for us. He wants you somewhere else. Father, keep them from the evil one. That's what's being prayed here. But Matthew 16, before Jesus prays this prayer, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Certainly Jesus knows this and yet he stops on his way to Gethsemane and prays this prayer with this content for these. I am asking, beseeching, begging, interacting with my father for these things, for them. Jesus interceded for their sanctification. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is 
truth. Jesus prays for our sanctification. Well, appropriate for us to pray for each other in all these categories, right? Son of God's praying for these. Don't we know it's the will and purpose of God to sanctify us? Don't we have lots of scriptures here? Yeah, we'll just read a couple of them here. Second Thessalonians 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the Bible already reveals God chose you for the purpose of you of sanctifying you in the truth. The Bible already told us that God plans to do that. But Jesus stands and makes an argument for it and makes a request. First Thessalonians 4.3 for this is the will of God. Right, so we know it's God's will. Your sanctification. To abstain from sexual immorality. Right? That, and and that's, that's a wonderful thing. I, I won't unpack this. I'm very tempted to. But sanctification is, is a, a bit of a location thing. It's, it's sort of like it's, it's not over there. It's over here. This is what makes Christianity, and, and please hear this, and I hope you just go back and read your Bible and you won't kind of walk out of here going, that, that dude is so narrow-minded. Um, sanctification is God at work. Something is, is, is in this location, in this condition, with this mindset, and when God goes to work on it, it's going to go in a particular place. It's going to go in a particular direction. It's going to have association with the will of God. And then there's a list here that I'm not unpacking the whole list that you abstain from sexual immorality. First thing that gets mentioned by Paul here is when sanctification goes to work in you, you're going to stop sleeping around with everybody because you're going to not be in this location anymore. You're going to be in this location. So what this does for you in terms of your understanding of Christianity, it says wherever you are, your individuality does not determine what sanctification is. You don't get to say that, well, for me, when God's at work in me, I end up over there. No, because sanctification is a work of the spirit in truth. It's not a work of my opinion. It's not a work of my effort. It's a work of the spirit in truth. So when it goes to work on me, it moves me there. It moves everybody there. Everybody. No matter where you are, you're way over here. It's going to move you there. Well, you know, maybe to move me here because, you know, I'm different. I've always been different. You know, I just stick out in some ways. I just, you know, I don't really care for that at all. It's just not me. You know, sanctification is going to make you this. It's not going to make you all kinds. It's going to make you this. You're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God's will is our sanctification. But yet Jesus prays for it in this prayer. Next category, Jesus, intercession for future disciples and unity. Right? He, he prays about those who are going to believe through them. Right, so there's this mission that does, does Jesus know that the Great Commission? Does he know about that? Does he know that the Father is sending them to the world, obviously to accomplish his will? But, but he's going to bring that up here anyway. He's going to ask for it. Anyway, does Jesus know at the end in Revelation there is a gathering before the throne? Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There are people who are going to believe from every part of the world. They're going to believe in Jesus Christ. Does Jesus know that when he talks about those who are going to believe through them? Of course he does. But he prays for it to come to pass. 
He does not have a fatalistic view that it doesn't matter whether I pray for this or not. It'll just happen. Que sera, sera. Stuff just happens, you know? Well, apparently, that's not how Jesus approached stuff. Last thing, Jesus' intercession for fullness of presence. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, does that make you think that maybe they weren't going to be with Jesus? But when Jesus makes this request, doesn't it kind of feel like maybe this isn't going to happen? And you know, I, you know, if you sit in this church long enough, I, I, I probably don't venture very far from sovereignty in any message. But if sovereignty has been confused by our understanding to turn us into this idea that it doesn't really matter what we believe, it doesn't really matter what we do, then as human beings, we're confused about sovereignty. Sovereignty is a big, complicated matter. It's way beyond our pay grade. But it's in the Bible, and we have to teach it and appreciate it. But Jesus sounds like, so your prayers can sound like, well, were they going to be somewhere else, Jesus? Besides your presence? Because you're asking for that. There's something being secured here in these prayers. There's something being accomplished. And I don't have to fully understand it because the Bible teaches that they're going to be in the presence of God. All right, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Did Jesus know that? Yes, yes, of course he knew that. But his prayers were informed and he asked. So, Jesus says, I am praying, and you should be too. I want to pick up the Apostle Paul for a minute and help him translate this prayer life into the setting of the church and the places in which we live. And I want us to to pray at the close of just staring at Paul for a second and what he does. The Apostle Paul essentially is going to be saying, I need you to be praying. That's going to be his message here in Romans chapter 15. Jesus is praying as though it matters because apparently it does. And the apostle Paul turns around and says, I need you to be praying because it matters. All right, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Why, Paul? Well, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that, pray, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The construction of that verse is so revealing because here you have a revelation that Paul acknowledges. When this comes to pass, it will be by God's will that it happens, but I am appealing to you to pray for it to happen. Got any more on that? Inspired word of God, demonstrated by the perfect prayer, whoever prayed, reinforced by the greatest New Testament writer, 
is that there's something about the will of God that's coming to pass in this sentence. And Paul does not turn his back on it and say, hey, God's got this. Don't worry about it, guys. No, hey, hey, if you got time to pray, whatever. I know you don't have time to pray, so don't even worry about it. It's God's will. I mean, and if it's God's will, why? No, 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 no. Paul appeals. I appeal to you, brothers. This, this word is the same kind of weighty word as I am praying. It, it, it is to admonish or exhort. It's to beg or entreat. Brothers, I don't know what this sounds like if Paul says this in person, but it doesn't sound like, hey, hey, hey look, if you get a minute, No, it it sounds like the guy's intense. He's looking at you. His facial structure, his tone of voice is appealing to you. I really need you to do this. I mean, he's pushing you into a corner in this category. I need you to strive together with me in prayer. That word's an interesting word in the Greek. Sin agonizomai. If you listen carefully, there's the word agonize tucked inside that word. I need you to agonize with me in prayer. I don't just need you to hoist up a prayer and then, yeah, if I get a minute, eh. I, I need you to agonize. I need you to feel the weight of what's going on in the kingdom of God right now. I, and when you feel that weight, that's what Jesus felt the weight. When you, when you travel with Jesus to Gethsemane, there's, a, there's like this gathering moment of the great purpose of God that's happening on that evening. And when Jesus gets alone in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and drops of blood are falling off of his forehead, you know why? Because the weight of what God was doing was descending upon this moment in history and crushing the life out of him. That's why he's in his prayer closet. That's why he stops on his way and he prays to God. This Weightiness needs prayer. Paul, whatever's going on in Paul's moment of ministry, he needs, I need you. I'm begging you. Pray for me. I need you to pray for me. Then he unpacks. He unpacks a few reasons here. And I I want to be careful. I want to encourage us and I want to pray for us. But can can we pay attention? This is the, the ultimate New Testament hero. This is the guy who defines what New Testament ministry looks like. This is the guy who gets it right more than anybody that we could ever point to that any of us have ever known. And he is asking for his folks, he's asking for us to agonize with him in prayer. For what, Paul? He's going to mention specifics here. And this doesn't cover the whole realm of our intercessory prayer. But here's what he brings up, verse 31. That I may be delivered that I may be delivered from something. Paul apparently believed in situations, in people, in forces, in activity, that he will need some kind of intervention from God to get rescued out of. He believes in that. He believes in this particular case, he points out that there are unbelievers in Judea. There are actual people in his life who are going to do some things in his life that he is going to... um, Agonize with me in prayer so that I can escape the clutches of these people. Wait, Paul, did you read the whole story? Don't you know how this thing ends? This is how some of us would counsel him, by the way. Paul, you're kind of really worked up. You just need to settle down a little bit. No, no, no. I don't think you understand the forces that are at work in this world. 
I'm going to need God to intervene for me to be able to escape from these people. And those are just human forces. This is the Apostle Paul who's going to write about spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, who the human forces are mere amateurs. Those guys are professionals. Paul is going to teach much about the the inner workings of passions and the power of sin that dwells in us that we might need to be rescued out of. All right, so can you imagine, you got, you got people in your life, and I wanna, I wanna pull this towards a reality. You got people in your life who are assigned, like the Apostle Paul, to minister into other people's lives. And they, they will need to be delivered out of a variety of forces that will come against them at various points in ministry. That will include human being forces, that will include spiritual forces, that will include passions and sinful desires from within their own hearts that they will need to be rescued from. Paul told the the elders in Ephesus, you're going to need to be rescued from each other. Do, Do you pray for the leadership in your midst? Agonizing in prayer, recognizing these dudes can get taken down. Oh, no, because I've read the Bible and none of that, you know, in the end, it's all a happy ending and it all works out. Well, then you don't pray like Paul or Jesus. Stick a little imagination in there and say, hey, look, you know, theologically, this makes no sense. But it sounded like when Jesus prayed and when Paul asked for prayer, that something could go sideways. But unlike fatalism that believes there's nothing I can do about that. If it goes sideways, it goes sideways. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus believed he could pray and have an impact on that thing not going sideways. He acted like sideways was a possibility, even though he knew all that we've just described. Paul knows all we've just been describing about sovereignty and purpose. But he asked for prayer like, this could go sideways. I need you to pray that it does not. Then he has a great little phrase here. Pray that I may be delivered. And pray that my service... For Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Oh, that's an interesting word. That word acceptable. It's not that they're going to they're gonna like it and buy tickets and come back and write a good review on Google. That's not what this is about. That, that word is describing a receptivity. And an openness of heart. Luke used the same word when he says no prophet is welcome, acceptable, received in his own hometown. That's what that same word is. Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. And they were not receptive to him. He came to his own. His own did not, what? Receive him. Can you say ministry being received is supernatural? It is not in the realm of men. It's not in the realm of a guy who can make a good argument. It's not in the realm of the really noble person who finally thinks right about their own life and therefore gets in line with God. It's a supernatural thing. If anybody this morning here receives anything, it's going to be a supernatural miracle. But did we, did we pray like that before we came to church today? Or did we just assume, hey, you know, okay, Sarah, Sarah, it all works out. People get what they're going to get. And, you know, the guy who preaches, I don't even know who it is this morning, but he'll, he'll, he'll say something and everybody gets something out of it.
Yeah, there, there is for us a, in the Western church especially, a natural mindedness, a, an audience attitude. We have an audience attitude. We're here as an audience. We're here as an audience in a consumer culture. Let me fill it in that way. Our world has taught us when we gather for self, this, this is like going to a Saints game, right? This is like an event. So we come to this and, and we're a little bit of an audience and we're just trying to check out what's happening. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll like a couple of things and we'll kind of grab hold of that kind of stuff. That's not the church. That, that might be a Pelicans game. That, that might be a school play. I mean, be a lot of things where people sit in chairs as an audience to observe something and decide whether they want to buy season tickets next year because ah, this didn't do anything for me. How many people can sit in here in a church somewhere in the Western world and waiting for the, the guy with the guitar to do something to get them to worship? You know, I don't know, Keith, I'm just not feeling it, you know. You know, I mean, matter of fact, I just, I just haven't been feeling it for a while. Oh, as though that's his problem. Or you go to your small group, discussion leader, eh, you know. It's kind of the same stuff over and over again. You know, every once in a while I ask a cool question, but, oh, group was really good, finally. Or maybe you, you come, you hear a message preached. You know, I don't know how many pastors I've interacted with through the years. You know, tell stories about people who come to their church and who leave their church and they come for these reasons and they leave for those reasons. I just, I just wasn't being fed. Uh, listen, we're not an audience. This is not the food network. This is not like take a bite and tell me how much salt it does or doesn't have in it. We recognize this is a supernatural event. A miracle happens when our dull, darkened, fallen humanity lights up with something from God. Do you understand? That's not because we're smart in the seats or the guy in the pulpit is really effective. It's Paul saying, agonize with me. That when I go to Jerusalem and I minister to the saints, that there's this miracle of receptivity in their lives. That somehow they open their life and they say, I get that. I want that. Because we've gotten so dull to the idea. We've got 80-something people coming to an alpha follow-up meeting. We've got folks responding to the gospel. That's a guy was dead. The other night, this guy was dead at Alpha, and he got up and walked. We thought, oh, I get that. Because in the natural, he came to life. In the spirit, it's a miracle that anybody comes to life. It is. But if I really believe that, and I know Alpha is taking place on Tuesday night, I am going to agonize together in prayer the way Jesus Agonize the way Paul asked for people to agonize with him in prayer. That other phrase, I won't read the whole passage, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul opens up his appeal to the Corinthians in that moment. Verse 7, he says, He says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers 
of many. How did it happen? Through the prayers of many. Paul knew there's something that God wills to be done, but there's people praying for it and those things come together. They are not separate. One doesn't exist without the other. That's why Jesus prays the way he does. Paul referenced in Romans 15, the accomplishment of God's will. So that by God's will, I may come to you. We pray so that the will of God may happen. And that's something. Well, wait, but if it's the will of God, stop, stop. You're not smart enough to go where your brain wants to go right now. If it's the will of God, well, I don't get to work out how the will of God and the prayers of the saints come together to create the world that God is intending to exist. I don't get to figure that out. I just get to follow Jesus who prayed like his prayers mattered. The last thing that Paul prayed for and he asked them to agonize was, was the experience of joy and refreshing by those serving in ministry. He said, verse 32, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Why, Paul, is it possible that you wouldn't have joy when you come to us? Is, is it possible that you wouldn't be refreshed? Paul, is that, is that possible? Well, it sure sounds like it's possible because he's asking for them to agonize with him in prayer so that the other outcome might actually happen. Sam Storms, in his chapter of an excellent book called Still Sovereign, he references Romans 15 and he says, such a statement, this prayer we just looked at, or this request from Paul, such a statement may seem incongruous to some, appearing as it does in an epistle known principally for its emphasis on divine sovereignty. Paul, however, felt no discomfort in arguing that God had, listen, suspended the success of his journeys and mission on the prayers of his people. Without those prayers, Paul was at a loss. That's what he sounds like, doesn't it? And if your theology is better than Paul's and you can argue him out of it, say, Paul, man, we need to talk, man. You just sound way too desperate here. Because Paul sees something about the economy of God. The same thing Jesus saw in John chapter 17, where he said, we're launching this project of discipleship. But I'm not launching this thing prayerlessly. I am praying. I am praying for them. And you should be too. What happens in disciple making is a miracle. It takes prayer, believing God to do something radically powerful for disciple making to take place. And that's what I want to conclude with. Keith, you can come back up here. Remember, I've called this, this little series the John 17 Project. Actually, Seth can just come, Keith. The John 17 Project. Because it's like Jesus is working on a project. He's explained to them discipleship in John 15 in his last evening together with them, what this is going to turn into, what it's going to be. And then he starts praying in John 17. He prays about disciple making. He prays about the future of this project of making disciples in all the nations. The great commission gets the great prayer of John chapter 17 from Jesus. 
Jesus didn't launch disciple-making in a prayerless vacuum, and it cannot continue in a prayerless vacuum either. It, it needs the people of God to follow Jesus in John chapter 17. I read this last thought from Tim Chester in the book, The Message of Prayer. He says, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray as the representatives of Jesus. We are to pray with the priorities of Jesus. In, in the first section of the prayer, Jesus prayed for the glory of God as eternal life comes through the gospel. It was a prayer for mission. He prayed about the project. Then he prayed for his people to be kept in the gospel. But this is so that they can take the gospel into the world. Once again, this was a prayer for the mission. And then in the final section, he prayed that Christian believers might be one and share in the life of God. And again, this is so that the world might see and believe. Again, it is a prayer for mission. What we learn from the example of Jesus is that mission is to be at the heart of our praying. I'm about to suffer the most horrible death and sit under the wrath of God in judgment. But before I do that, I am praying for them. The mission they're about to be on will take a move of God to answer these prayers. Father, protect them, sanctify them. Jesus asked for these things. So question for us. Have we become part of the Western, naturalized, technologically savvy world that has ignored these realities in Scripture? To where, where prayer is, is it's, it's an add-on. It's not something we take seriously. It's not something that we make a lot of room for. We don't feel the necessity of it. It kind of captures our attention that the Apostle Paul this morning is sounding like he's inviting us to agonize with him in prayer. This is the Apostle Paul. And I don't think the nature of his ministry is any different than the children's ministry workers sitting somewhere near you. Who, who goes into a classroom every few weeks and interacts with children who are part of a world that doesn't know God, who is darkened in its understanding. For that to have an impact this morning, just like Paul's ministry to have an impact, Paul would invite us to agonize in prayer for them. I, I, I can tell you just from interacting with churches, just paying attention to what's going on in the church world and our own experience as a local church, this is not the same world that I got saved in. Oh, it is, but it's not. Doing church today, Frank and I were just talking when we were praying this morning. Doing church today is different than doing church 20 years ago. The way people live, the way they struggle, the levels of faith. It is not. Listen, we just went through a little global pandemic event with a lot of cultural noise in it. And if, and if I stared into churches and I talked to pastors 
Most of them have never gone through something that so touches every member of their church in such a radical way. But, but we have. Hurricane Katrina turned everybody's life in our world upside down. And, and then we got to lead this family of believers through post-Hurricane Katrina. And can I just tell you, I would go back to that catastrophe in a second. We were a different people back then whose lives personally were more affected by that event than we are by COVID, wearing masks, whatever else has come along the last two years. But the church is so much harder to steer and lead today than it was then. There are less people running towards calls to ministry. There are pastors leaving. I read a book the other day. 1,500 pastors a month still resigning. You hear us, you know, hey, can we get some volunteers for children's ministry? What if, what if, here's that little list. What if it takes a people to agonize in prayer for those who serve in ministry to be delivered from the forces that are working against them right now, that are making them want to quit, making them barely hold their head above water, making them struggle to be available to serve. What if it takes a church that's got a bunch of people in it who recognize nothing's automatic in a sovereign universe? At least Jesus didn't sound that way. And Paul doesn't sound like he's asking for automatics. Satan, there is a need for deliverance. You're going to need to pray like that deliverance is awaiting your prayers. There's a, there's a need for receptivity and impact for people to actually hear something that God is saying. For them to turn their lives over and be saved. To them to long for and love God more than anything else. And that's going to take a supernatural encounter from God. Agonize with me in prayer for that. Or don't. And see what you get. I don't know what it would have been like for Jesus not to have prayed what he prayed. I don't know. Because he prayed. And he calls us to do the same. So I want to do two things this morning. I want us together, and I want you personally to own this. And um, This is not condemnation, it's correction. Right? Have y'all read the Bible? There's a lot of correction in the Bible. Because we live in a fallen world. And I'm as guilty as taking too many left turns. And, I, and God needs to tell me, dude, you should have turned right. And I don't feel condemned by that. I feel like I know which is the right direction to go in now. So this is not about condemning anybody. Because I don't have the power to condemn you, by the way. You know, the blood of Christ has released you from that. So there's nothing I could say this morning that could truly condemn you. Nothing. I, I could curse you out, I guess, and insult you. But... I can't condemn you, but we do need to be corrected. We cannot be the church that Jesus modeled and led and that Paul stood up everywhere that he went and, and have prayer as this kind of optional thing. Well, yeah, maybe if I get to it. So I, I think if all of us are surveying our own life and we're saying, hey, prayer is a historical thing that's not happening anymore. I, I never really have had much of a prayer life. Uh, I think correction is appropriate. So I'm going to ask you to welcome that 
right? I'm, I'm praying for the, the miracle of receptivity in our hearts this morning to be able to feel in my heart, God, I don't want, I don't want to do this anymore like this. I, I, I want to I pray the way you prayed. I, I want to see something that's so weighty that I come with arguments before the throne of God. So that's, that's what I want. I don't want what I've had. I, I want that. So I want to ask us for that. The other thing I want to ask you, I want to ask you to join the prayer team. And the prayer team puts requirements on you. You got actually time slots where you're asked to pray. It equips you to do that. It helps you to know the, the priorities of things and going on in the kingdom of God around us. Just came back from the Sovereign Grace Conference and man, God has opened so many doors around the world for the gospel that through Sovereign Grace that I am so excited about that we get to be praying about, we get to contribute to as a church. So here's the two things. A little QR code on the back of this. Not sure what happens. I think you get transported to another location. If you scan that, third heaven maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but scan that, see where it takes you. It may, it may provide, I don't know how maybe I should ask Pete more about this. It may provide a place for you to sign up, sign your email up so you can get more information on how you can get involved. And, and Todd, thank you. Um, this is a, a burden that always, I feel, always feel the burden. And to know you're paying attention to this, Every day you wake up on Monday morning thinking about how can I help these guys fulfill this mission. Um, cannot thank you enough for that. Um, all right, so let's do two things. Just right there in your seat. Let's just, let's just ask the Lord to help us receive some correction this morning. Father, it would seem that Busyness and urgency and pressing matters are the common vocabulary of every day of our lives. But in John chapter 17, you sit in the most pressing, urgent hour that ever existed, ever existed. There was more going on in that moment than we could ever fathom. And its weight of importance, the stress of the moment, the details. And you stopped. You lifted your eyes to heaven. You put everything else on pause. You said, I am praying. Father, I am praying for them. Lord Jesus, we all signed up for, if you're, we're believers here today, we signed up for following Jesus. Signed up for your forgiveness, signed up for the empowerment in the spirit, signed up for the promises that bring eternity into our lives, signed up to know you as father. But by way of whatever I'm doing in the next 10 minutes, I just signed up to follow Jesus. So Lord, would you make us to follow you into John chapter 17? That our prayers sound like your prayers. That we create space in the midst of hecticness and 
noise and pressing matters and weighty matters. And right in the middle of that, we find a place, a sacred little island where we turn our hearts and our faith to you and we connect with you. Not casually, Lord, but we, we come with arguments. Lord, we got a little bit of an attitude. We're coming. Because we think we got reasons why you should be listening. We think we are jealous, Lord, for your cause and for your glory and for your good and for people that belong to you. That you would intervene in their lives. You would do what the Apostle Paul was hoping prayers would do for him. You would deliver some out of the clutches and powers that are in this world, in this age. Lord, you would cause gospel fruitfulness to take place, receptivity and impact. Ministry that gets received by people. Lord, we would, we would have our reasons to argue that with you. Lord, we would see your will come to pass. And we would call upon you to accomplish it. Lord, we would, we would experience joy and refreshing. And those who lead and serve would be joyful and refreshed by you. So Lord, we are in our hearts. Lord, redirect our lives. Teach us from this moment. Lord, prepare us for what 2023 might be like if the church prayed because it sounds like if you pray is different than if you don't. So Lord, we receive that from you as a church this morning. Got to pray right now for every person who's got a card or going to grab one. Or there may be some folks here that are new to the church. Maybe some young believers who they don't know how to serve. They're not sure what their gifts are. But Lord, it's not a person here who can't pray. And it's not a person here who can't get really good at it and grow and become powerful in the kingdom of God. God, I pray this morning, today, would be a moment where you awaken the call for some to find themselves in a place a year from that they never could have imagined in their faith, in their understanding, to find themselves five years from now in a place that blows their mind about how they interact with heaven, how they pray, and how, God, you are using them. God, I pray for 10 years from now, stories about people who interceded and it made a difference. And they got to hear that in their lives. So Lord, answer our prayer that you might teach us to pray. You are praying and we need to be as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. God bless you guys who are watching. Great to see you. Hopefully we'll see you soon. See you all next week.